Welcome to Healing with Worth, a podcast dedicated to healthy recovery and instilling hope in the wake of betrayal trauma. We are women who have experienced this intimately and want to offer hope to other women. While we may interview professionals on the show, the content should not be taken as therapeutic advice and is not meant to replace therapeutic healing. If you would like to join one of our free online worth groups to help with your betrayal trauma, you may find us at healingwithworth.org. Excited to, uh, to introduce you to Jeannie. Just a little bit about her and her expertise. She's been a clinical social worker for over 20 years, and she's had extensive experience in working with traumatized children and adults in a lot of various settings, including child protective services private practice, and in natural disasters. She's worked with specifically with betrayed partners and addicts for the last 10 years, and she co-owns and runs Willow Tree Counseling, which is in Northern California. And it specializes in treating problematic sexual behavior and sex addiction, as well as betrayal trauma. She is a certified sex addiction therapist supervisor, so a CSAT supervisor, as well as, well as a Absets supervisor and Absets is a partners of sex addicts trauma therapists. So for you ladies who are looking for individual counseling or coaching, if it doesn't fit with worth, finding someone who is Absets certified has the trauma model and specifically training for clinicians to work with betrayed partners. So and she is one of the supervisors who trains clinicians to do that. And I know this personally because she was my supervisor on a personal note. And so I know she is fabulous. I'm so grateful that she has been willing to come and, and share what she, her extensive experience and expertise in this subject with us tonight. And without further ado, I'll turn that over to you, Jeannie. Thank you so much. Well, thank you all for having me here today. And um, certainly this topic is near and dear to me. Besides having worked with betrayed partners and sex addicts for 10 years, a lot of the work I did before this, working with trauma folks, but was also with sexual assault and sex abuse. And so that's how I think I sort of carried that healing journey for folks and the expertise to do that and the interest to do that. And certainly the betrayal trauma model is something I'm very passionate about. And I really want people to know about it out in the world so that you can do your own best to heal yourself and uh, have the information, make the best choices that you can make for yourself at this time of your life. So thanks, Kim, for that beautiful recommendation. I certainly have enjoyed working with you. Yeah, this is me, LCSW, CSAT supervisor, partner specialist supervisor, and I do wanna give a plug for ABSATS. It's an organization that trains clinicians and coaches to work with the trauma, betrayal trauma, and coaches are, are, are not licensed folks, I haven't gone through the education process, but coaches are super great because they can cross state lines. They can have that coaching conversation with you across state lines. Clinicians are often limited by the state in which they're licensed. So if you're in Wisconsin and you want to work with me, I can't work with you because I can't go out of California. I'm licensed in the state of California. And coaches working together with clinicians is just such a great combination. Here we go. Comfort zone. This is my reminder. We're talking about sex. That's uncomfortable for a lot of people. Sexuality and sexual activity is a very private subject for most. 
And so I know that I'm asking you sort of to step out of your comfort zone. That said, you're here tonight because you want to you wanna know more and you want to learn more. We're here with other stuff to say. But I do want to acknowledge that we're talking about a sensitive topic, and I get that. And here, here's the elephant in the room. Back in the day, my business partner, Tim Stein, another clinician, I would say, I want to talk about the elephant in the room. I want to talk about what's going on that nobody's talking about. And for a long time, that was just sex addiction. And it still is for a lot of couples. But now it's also a representation of the topic of sexuality. Let's talk about sexuality and the impact of sex addiction on our sexuality. We need to talk about the elephant in the room because there's me, there's him, and there's the elephant. So let's talk about that. And I do want to also re reiterate what Kim had said. This is sometimes some possibly new information for you, sometimes maybe not. But if you find yourself getting really distressed, take a break. This presentation is being recorded. Certainly the audio is being recorded. I'm happy to send slides if needed to folks to remember if they missed something, but take care of yourself. That's four most important is take a break, walk away, turn your audio off, whatever you need to do, come back when you're ready, okay? So I just wanted to throw a little slide in here about what is sex addiction? And I've got, certainly it's a, it's a neurological piece, but we would say sex addiction is an unhealthy relationship to the sexual behavior. And it is not about sex, it's about the relationship I have with that object. So porn is the object, multiple affairs is the object. The object could be alcohol, the object could be cocaine, the object could be overeating, but it's the unhealthy relationship I have with that object. And there's a lot of science behind sex addiction, as well as other addictions, of what happens in the brain when a person is traveling this unhealthy route, often, 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 it's creating this neural network that says this acting out behavior is a good idea. Now, your cognitive brain would say this is not a good idea, but because it's become sort of this old default habit, it's the automatic go-to. Now, the process that creates that bad neural network is also the same process that an addict would use to reverse and change into healthy habits. Constant practice dedicated over a period of time is gonna create that happy or that safe, healthy neural network. And so that's what we would call sobriety and life of recovery. Oops, that's not what I want. How are we gonna, there we go. So when we look at what how do we come to this understanding of sex addiction? Now, I cannot say someone is diagnosed with sex addiction because it's not yet a diagnosis in the book of diagnoses in the world. However, it is on that path. It takes a long time for that to occur. And right now the World Health Organization has said, yes, sex addiction is a thing, but it hasn't made its way into, for us, it's called the DSM. It's a book of diagnoses. Until that time, we still use the same criteria for sex addiction that we do for other kinds of addiction. In my world, as a CSAT, I would say that you need to have three out of these 10 to cross that threshold of being a sex addict. So loss of control means I've tried to stop and couldn't. I have, it's out of control. It's unmanageable. Compulsive behavior means I feel like I've got to do it. 
I feel the urge for it. That's compulsive. Failed efforts to stop, exactly what it sounds like. I've tried to stop and it comes back. I've tried to stop, it comes back. I swore I never would do it again and it comes back. Loss of time is also, I didn't think I'd be using porn. I thought I'd just get onto porn, look for 20 minutes, and then it turned out to be hours. For some addicts, they have these binging experiences where they're at it for multiple hours, or they thought they'd go cruise this one street, and lo and behold, they're cruising for longer than they thought. They've lost time. Preoccupation is the thinking. Even though I may not be doing it, I'm thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it. I keep wondering if I could, if I would, what would happen if, and so that's, sometimes it's kind of stuck in that fantasy. Inability to fulfill obligations. I said I would pick up Johnny from school, but I was cruising because I lost track of time. Therefore, I didn't pick up Johnny. I said I would do these things at home, but I wasn't because I was looking at pornography. So whatever my sexual behavior is inhibiting me fulfilling my obligations. That's what that criteria means. And continuation despite consequences. This is, I know that my wife's unhappy. I know that if I don't get this project done, I'm going to get written up by my boss. I know these consequences are going to happen, and yet I still feel compelled or have interest in going and doing this sexual behavior, whatever that behavior is. So continuation despite consequences. And then escalation is, you know, I, I put this in the alcoholic way, like one beer, two beer, six beers, tequila, two, two, two. So we're looking for if there's an escalation within the sexual behavior. Now, people will still, sometimes they'll say, well, he watches porn. Is that still an escalation? And I would say, yes, depending on what his porn is like. But see, pornography, a person can get lost in pornography. There's so many things to click on. Click on this, get into this new part, a new type of porn. Click on this, get into that new part. So they can escalate inside of pornography or escalate from pornography into other behaviors, whether that's prostitution or you know, scoping and cruising, whatever. Losses, the next one is general. It might be loss of relationships, loss of job, those kinds of things. So this is different. It's like the consequences separate from the continuation despite, but they have incurred losses. Withdrawal is a really hard one because you can't tell when an addict's high, a sex addict. They don't look different. You can't necessarily tell through the lies. They're not slurring their words. They're not falling down. So withdrawal is a really hard one. Partners will notice irritability, moodiness. Suddenly he's on edge. Suddenly he's angry and blaming me for whatever. And it's hard without knowing the, truly what's going on. You might see withdrawal. And we always tell addicts when you're getting sober, prepare everyone around you plus you that you're probably going to get really irritable because you've always used this coping skill to cope with your emotions and your processes of the world. We're taking that away because we don't want you using that sexual behavior anymore. And so how do I deal with all these emotions and these emotions keep coming? I hope that's helpful for you all just to give you some information about sex addiction and how one would assess and determine whether sex addiction is present. And it's so hard because I usually am speaking in front of lots of people and I, you know, be able to gauge. Okay, so here's, here's where we're going to start talking about healthy sexuality and unhealthy sexuality. On my left, we've got healthy. 
people are working together. There's a beautiful day. They're holding hands. Someone's helping someone up off the hike. Okay. Unhealthy. People are uncomfortable. They're sad. They're not talking. They're not communicating. The, bang the body language is turning away. So this is just sort of my, hey, this is what we're going to talk about next slide. And as we do that, I want to sort of set the tone, okay? We need to have certain things in place for us to feel sexually safe in the world. And this, this is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And if anyone has ever studied any kind of psychology, you probably have seen this. And the idea is that you need what's on the bottom to kind of, and maybe not completely or perfectly, but a lot of it to get to the next level, to get to the next level, to make it to the next level. Well, it's the same thing with sex. We need our psychological needs taken care of for us to feel safe. For us to feel safe, then we can have the intimate relationship and it keeps going up. And that's one of the big struggles with sex addiction is there's a, there's a feeling in the home of distrust, of not healthy communication or no communication. There's not this open dialogue going on. So it's hard to feel sexually safe being sexual or talking about sex when there's sort of this contamination of distrust going on or uncomfortableness or fear to address. I pulled this out. I really wanted to share it. It's one of the things I share always with our partners and addicts that we work with. And, and the citation of where I got this is at the bottom. The only thing I don't like about this diagram, so please don't see it this way, means you do this, then you go to the next level, then you've got sex intimacy at top. Okay, so let's, I just, I'm sorry, I couldn't move my boxes. <laughs> I wanted to redo this, but didn't know how I really wanted to say it, so I thought I'd just say it verbally. We need all of this to feel sexually safe. Folks need to have non-sexual intimacy, and, and I would call that physical affection without it becoming sex. Intellectual intimacy, proximal. Proximal is just hanging out together and being companions. Recreational is having fun together, being out in the world, having fun. And then we have emotional intimacy, and that's the sharing of thoughts and ideas. And then we've got spirituality and the connection and discussion and, and, and feeling togetherness with our spirituality. When those things are in a nice balance, then people will feel safer sexually and they'll feel better about their sexual intimacy. So when people talk about intimacy, I always say, what, what kind are we talking about? Are we talking sexual, emotional, physical, record? like what kind? Because there's many kinds of intimacy. And let me just pause here and check in with you, Kim. Any questions? I think you answered it in a prior slide, but one of the questions, is there a difference between sex addiction and sex compulsion? Yes. Okay, so in my world, yes, it's a fine line. Now, this gets tricky because it's actually kind of become this political word. Some people will say, well, it's sexual compulsion, it's not addiction. And some people will say, well, you can't have, you can't have both, it's one. And I'm going to say you can have both. And what I mean by that is there's room for both. I would say that someone who has sexual compulsivity has a lot of the pieces of sex addiction, but it hasn't yet become and crossed that threshold of neurological addiction. So they've got the interest of doing it, they've got the habit forming started, but they're not yet in full-blown addiction with it. To me, it's like a stepping stone towards full addiction. 
These are the people who are able to stop for many years at a time. My question always with those is that when you when they start back up after you know being sober and clean for seven years and they start back up, what was going on in their life that did not, they did not handle well that got them back into this compulsive or addictive state? So you will sometimes hear sex sex therapists, sex, sexual health folks say sex addiction is not a real thing and it's just compulsive behavior and we need to work with the compulsions. I disagree. The research disagrees. There's tons of research about sex addiction and brain scans and neurotransmitters and all kinds of stuff that shows sex addiction is a real thing. So hopefully I answered the question. <laughs> it Any did other fabulously. Questions? All right. Any more questions? Uh, there's one more and it might fit better at the end, but the question is re in regards to sex integration therapy and if you recommend it or have any have ever done it. Yeah, and so I think what that person's referring to is sexual reintegration. And yes. the idea of that, yes, we can talk about that. If you wouldn't mind, Kim, would you please remind me of that question? Because at right. the end, I do do some talking about couples therapy and what to look for and what you need to have good couples work coming together, because this is all possible to have a lot of good healing. So if you'd remind me, that'd be super great. Absolutely. Thanks, dear. Okay, so on our left side, now this is where I'm actually going to slow down. I'm sure I was talking fast. I sometimes get all excited. Healthy versus unhealthy. It's really hard when you're not sure and people aren't talking about sex, whether you're aware that you're in a healthy sexual state or not. You might, as partners of addicts, you might have felt uncomfortable, felt unsafe, felt awkward felt coerced, but not known if that was typical sexuality or do all people feel that? So here's, here's a slide. Now, what I also know in my research is lots of people have different versions of this kind of a slide. I took some of this from my own work and also in Dr. Sherry Keffer, which is why her name's also down in the bottom there. And so some of this stuff comes out of her book. Some of this stuff comes out of my work. So let's start with the first one. Requires partnership and mutual consent. Mutual consent is a really um, super important phrase. This is the idea that we both have had a conversation and have an, a, an out loud agreement about what we are going to do within our sexuality. Mutual consent is not present. For example, when one partner steps out from the marriage and the sexual life and goes about, and I'm so sorry, I'm gonna use a lot of he's for addicts and a lot of she's for partners. I'm completely aware that that is not always the case. And so if you're, if you're a male partner or you're in a homosexual relationship or whatever, but in my mind, I work a lot with he addicts and she partners, so that's my language. But if, if he steps out and he's obviously, if he's having sexual contact with someone else and, and, the, and the partner did not say that's agreeable to me, then we do not have mutual consent. Right there, we're in unhealthy land. Now, same thing with pornography. I don't know how many times I have heard people say, but guys just do that. And some, some guys might watch porn. That doesn't always make him a porn addict, but irrelevant. 
if the partner, the wife, the girlfriend, whatever, if she has not said, yes, I'm okay, that that is part of our sexual experience, no matter if you're doing that sexual experience on your own, masturbating to porn on your own, if she hasn't been part of that conversation, we do not have mutual consent. That said, a lot of schools don't talk about healthy sex. A lot of organizations and churches and religious folks do not talk about what healthy sex is. It's not, unfortunately, something our society is very fluent in talking about. So I can understand how it would be very scary to say to one's partner, can we talk about sex? And I haven't given consent and, and let's agree upon what's in our, basically our, our sexual life in our marriage contract. Because mutual consent is, is usually the first thing that is not present in a sex addiction relationship. There are some folks in the world who say, you know what, I'm okay if he watches porn here or there. Um, I'm not interested, I've just had a baby, I've got a baby on me all day, and so if he's gonna watch porn and masturbate, fine. That, that still is not the same thing of saying, I give my mutual consent for you to become a porn addict. Those are not the same things. So I just, because some people get really twisted of, well, I, I told him it was okay, but I didn't think he was gonna do that. Well, you did not have mutual consent. You did for part of it, and then he took it further. So, and, and my guess is there's gonna be a lot of questions or mm, wonderings about that. Um, I'm still going down the healthy sexuality part. Safety, honesty, trust. Obviously, we need to have some safety, we need to have honesty, we need to have trust. That builds healthy sexualities, that builds sexual safety, I would say. The other thing about healthy sex, the next one, present, in the moment. This is the idea that my partner is emotionally connected to me. I feel his presence. The opposite of that, which is somewhere on the other side, the opposite of that is I don't know where he is in his mind. And he's just having orgasm with me. And I feel like I'm an object. And I feel like, you know, take me out, put somebody else in, he probably wouldn't even notice. That's not in the present. That is fantasy driven. That is detachment. That is, so, so that's, that's not healthy sex. So being present in the moment, feeling that connection. And that doesn't mean you can't feel desire for each other or have him feel desire for you. It just means that he's present with you in his mind. He's not playing videos in his mind. He's not playing fantasies in his mind. He's not forgetting you're there. He's present with you. Um, this is a reintegration thing. I do have a lot of partners who will say, in our recovered life, I need his eyes open when we're having sex. I need him to look at me when we're having sex. That helps me know he's with me and he's present. Or I need the lights on when we're having sex because I need to know that he's into me, he's not in his mind, in his addictive behavior. So present in the moment is a really big one. Healthy sex can be playful. It can be powerful with desire. It could also be very vulnerable, but it's it, but all capsulated in safety. Caring experience, keeping another one's respect, self-respect in mind. So, so no matter what sexual behavior, because sometimes people do get into 
the domination submission. And that can be very arousing for some people, but it's mutually agreed to. And it's with each other in mind that we make that agreement. It's not against someone's wishes. It's not against a mutual consent. Um, but we are holding the other person in our mind as we're sexual with them. Requiring healthy communication. Again, you're going to hear me say this at the end about the reintegration is that please talk a lot about sex because partners are going to have a sense of betrayal. They may have flashbacks during sex. Uh, he might put his hand on your shoulder and you're going to think he wants to have sex. He may or may not. Right? That's part of his work is figuring out his sexual energy. Um, but healthy communication of, okay, your hand's on my shoulder. Are you trying to have sex with me? Are you trying to come on to me? Or is your hand just on your shoulder because you're showing physical affection and you love me? But we need to have some healthy communication, especially when it gets all tangled up with betrayal trauma and sex addiction. It's really complex stuff. It's really complex stuff. The last one, a natural drive, sorry, natural drive allows both parties to relax and enjoy. This is that idea of arousal and desire. I'm aroused, I desire it, it's interesting, it's fun, I want to do that, and I'm okay doing that with him. And same of, he has that natural desire, and it's not focused into addictiveness, it's focused into this moment, this person. So a real emotional connection again. Now on the other side, and, and this, this I, I made sure to put this one on first, unhealthy. It's intensity-based. It's not about intimacy. It's about how fast, how hard, how, for, the, for an addict, how much can I ride that wave? We call it surfing. It's like surfing the wave of desire, surfing the wave before he goes into orgasm or goes into whatever. And this is really neurologically, how much dopamine can his brain release? So he's getting really excited and really high and having this euphoric experience. But see, none of that is based on the relational piece between he and I, it's all about him up in his head. So if there's intensity and it doesn't feel connected, because you could have intense desire for each other and that'd be fun. But if it's one-sided, it's intensity in his head. And then we know we're in the unhealthy category. Coercion and non-consensual acts. And actually this goes down a little bit to that sense of obligation. When I feel like I have to, and it's, and I think it's somewhere in there, it says maybe, no, I think he took it out, duty-driven. I feel obliged. He's going to get mad at me if I don't sort of give in and have sex with him. I told him no, and he stopped, or I told him no, and then he didn't stop. And now I just kind of give up. I want him to leave me alone, so I'm just going to give up and give in. Sometimes a lot of people have fear. He's going to be mad at me. I'm going to say no. He's going to be mad at me for three days. He's going to punish me for it. That's So all of that, I know we're in the unhealthy because certainly it's not in the present. Certainly it's not love and kindness. Certainly it's not emotional connection. That's about power plays. And so anything that has a feel of that goes in the unhealthy route. Independent fantasy, I talked about that. It's like up in his brain. Here's another one, which is scary, 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 scary for partners. I will often ask addicts when they say, well, I haven't, I haven't watched porn in six months a year. Excellent. Great. Keep on that. When was the last time you masturbated? Oh, I haven't masturbated in two months. Okay. When you were masturbating, were you thinking of your videos? Were you thinking about porn? 
Yeah, what's the problem? You're still as if you were watching porn. The brain does not know the difference, okay, which is super scary, of watching porn or seeing porn in my mind. Same thing. You'll see this when Olympics, which we didn't have for the summer, but you'll see this with athletes. When they'll close their eyes and, you know, the camera's always, you know, face on them. Of course, they're, they're closed eyes. But they're visualizing what they're doing. Okay. Their body is practicing and is engaged in that. And my body will chill here. I always think of it with skiers. But that's all in their brain. So it's masturbating or not masturbating because that might be part of their addiction. But not playing the videos. Healthy sexuality is I feel sexual and aroused in my body, and that's bringing me pleasure. Not I'm in my mind trying to get off kind of a thing. So healthy, unhealthy. Unhealthy sex, goal-driven. That's back to the intensity piece. We're going to do this because I want to have orgasm and I want to do it in this way. That's really rigid. And anything that's got that kind of rigidity, I'm going to say borderline's unhealthy. And if it's goal-driven, one, it probably isn't a lot of fun, but it's, it's not a partnership unless both people said this is goal-driven and we're going to orgasm or you're going to orgasm and this is what we're going to do. But see, that would be mutual consent. So that would be okay and it would be in the healthy category. But if one person's goal-driven, then we're in unhealthy. We don't have both people going along for the ride. And the last one does not value sexual needs, thoughts, and wants. If an addict is not respecting what his wife is saying, I do and do not want to do, and violating and crossing those boundaries, we certainly are in the unhealthy sex category. Um, that can be for any relationship. I want the couple talking, feeling comfortable and safe enough to do that. And for, if someone were to say, I don't want to do that, that the other person would respect that, preferably without the punishment. Okay, and when they cross the line and you've said no and they do it anyways, then certainly we're in the unhealthy category. But then we have a crossing of boundaries, which feels violating, which gets us in a whole other pile of worms. So I hope there's clarity there or more clarity between healthy and unhealthy. Yeah. Kim, are there questions on that? Because sometimes that brings up a lot. Yes, so there's there's quite a few questions and comments. Let me see if I can summarize some okay. of the or, or read some of the comments. I have a question for you, Kim. Can other folks see the comments? Some of the comments they can, but the reminder is to send them to me privately if it's a question and not to not to disclose a lot of personal detail and if it's put out to everyone. Yeah. Um, just because it, it has the potential of being so triggering reading these but some of the some of the topics that are coming up that I'm seeing is I guess around language we're going back to the mutual consent piece yeah. and what would you call them and this is a very common thing where they are they are playing out in their mind a pornographic video or whatever they've seen using your body without without your knowledge that this is what's happening so you yep. feel or so the partner is feeling used. She's feeling like she actually didn't consent to that sexual experience because mm -hmm. that was not what she was agreeing to. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about language to describe 
that experience, it's suggested, somebody suggested emotional rape or it feels mm. like rape. It's pretty mm. intense language. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and how to conceptualize a very common experience that most of us have in this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, so, and that's, that's okay, so let me just make sure I got it. Being in the sexual moment and feeling like or believing or maybe because you know because of past conversations, he's replaying videos and using your body to act out with those videos. So I got it? Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, that happens. <laughs> and sometimes it's not happening, but the partner doesn't know that. And then the partner assumes that's happening because it's happened so many times in the past. And this is where I go back to use your words and ask. If you feel detachment from him, you consented to the sexual experience, but now it's taken a turn, ask, use your words. When, when I've got couples who are in a good place who are actually working on this, back to that reintegration word, I will have her say, it seems like you just went away. Where are you? And come back. Or where are you? We need to stop because now I'm feeling unsafe. It is absolutely fine to stop in the middle of a sexual act because you're not feeling safe. And I know that sounds easy to do, easy to say, and super hard to do. And I get that. And that's why practice, 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 practice saying it, practice saying it out loud, practice having that conversation before you're in the bedroom, practice, practice, practice. If you're not consenting and it's continuing, right. And I'm, I'm gonna be careful with the word rape because there are certainly situations that are clear of, I said no, he forced it. I said no, he forced it. Yes, that's marital rape. When it's in someone's brain and we can't mind read, then we really need to use our words. And, and I don't know if y'all have heard this before, but the idea, it's an old saying of sex starts in the kitchen. And this is that reference of that emotional dialogue, that being together, that safety, happens in our outside world before we get to the bedroom. So having those conversations before you're in a sexual experience may help you later because then it's not out of the blue to anybody. We've already talked about it a little bit. So, yes, thank you. Thank you for that. Let's see, I just checked at the time. Oh, look, this is my mutual consent slide. This is what it should look like. <laughs> Sharing, talking, and I knew mutual consent would be one of those um, really important dialogues and what to do when it's not. And, and, and that really depends also if you have a willing partner who's willing to discuss these things with you in the kitchen. So sexual impact. This is another reason y'all are here. Okay, so at the bottom, you're gonna see Wendy Maltz, 2012. This comes out of one of her books, Sexual Healing Journey, I believe the book is. Wendy has done a lot of work, she's a clinician, a lot of work with sex abuse and sexual assault um, survivors. And, and this is what I was well-versed in before I got to my partner world. So I want you all to read these. I'm not gonna read them all because I hate it when presenters read their slides. But these are experiences, again, that people who have been through sexual trauma, could be abuse, could be assault, have experienced. Okay, and a you know, feeling dirty, comparison, aversion to touch, 
okay? These are some of the ones that have experienced by people who've gone through assault and abuse. What I noticed in my world is that these ones in red, and maybe other ones too, but these ones in red, I noticed my partners of sex addicts were experiencing them also, okay? And, and some of these partners never been sexually abused, never been sexually assaulted. However, the sexual injuries in red were still happening for them. That was really concerning to me. And I know this is just, just coming into our field of reckoning as professionals. I know in 09, there was a little bit of work on this. And then there was a little bit of work in our world in 12, 2012. And then for some reason, it got dropped for a ton of years. And so that's been my mission of bringing it back to the forefront. Partners having fear and don't want to be touched. Partners having intrusive, disturbing flashbacks. And this, was a, this is the thing, and maybe all, some of you have experienced this. I'm having flashbacks of things I've never seen before. Because in my mind, I created the video. I created the video of him acting out with the gal down the street. I created in my mind an image of what it was looking like when he was acting out with porn or when he was meeting a prostitute. I created my own image. And that image crashes in on me when I don't want it. It's intrusive. By the way, that's a biggie that happens when people are in sexual experiences with their partners. And it may have started out with good safety and emotional connection and all these things. And yet, in the middle of it, there's a fear of worry of, wait a second, he, I, he had sex with her. Or he came on to her. Or wait a second, did he use porn? So feeling dirty and contaminated when you weren't the one who did anything sexually, but feeling shame about his behavior. These are the sexual injuries that I see a lot of partners experience without having abuse or assault. Abuse and assault would just add on to the kind of stacking the, the, the level of stress and intensity if you did have that situation or that was in your past. So I want y'all to know that you're not crazy if y'all feel this way at times. And, and me and my work, I want professionals to know this so they can have better conversations with their clients. And this is why I put that out there. So I, because it was so important to me, I did a survey on it. Very poorly done research, right? I'm, I'm not the academic I want to be, but I put it out. And by the way, N means number of respondents. So out of 210 women, because I was presenting at our national conference, I said, those symptoms that you just saw on the previous slide, did you feel them before discovery? Before discovery, before you knew what was happening for real, before the smoking, smoking gun of the hidden phone was found, before you opened up the computer and saw all the porn, before. And what was so sad and scary and amazing to me is yes, a lot of people were feeling these things before discovery, okay? So 40% of those 210 women felt objectified in their relationship. 43% obligated. 42 felt pressured to be sexual. The body image, 64. Now after discovery, next slide, after discovery, these numbers just shot up. Now I have the smoking gun and I feel them even more. 
I want partners to know this, that you're not crazy if you're having this experience. And if you're struggling with this, please reach out for support. Whether that's in groups, whether that's coaches, whether that's clinicians, please reach out for support. You are not alone in this. And obviously you have some support because you got here tonight. So great job you. <laughs> after discovery and after knowing that this is the truth, or how do I say a piece of the truth, a lot of people feel less than, not enough. They're avoiding sex. They don't want to be touched. Those are some really common side effects for discovery of partners. Right? I don't know if, if we looked at the general population who aren't partners, what it would look like. I have no idea. This is only the 210 women who self-identified as partners of addicts. So I may have completely overwhelmed you all. <laughs> and you just received a ton of information. And so I want to pause here, check with Kim, any questions. And I'm okay if people want to you know, just dialogue a bit. I know we're running out of time, but there's about, I don't know, five, six slides, maybe more. But I just want to pause and say, I know this was a lot of information. I talked about criteria of assessing for sex addiction. We talked about healthy versus unhealthy sex addiction. And then we talked about sexual injury and common experiences of folks who have having sexual injury within the relationship of sex addiction. This is my pause for you, Kim. There are quite a few questions, so I'm trying to figure out how best to address them all. I'll <laughs> just kind of go through from what, what has been kind of the top that we haven't touched on at all. One is to clarify, arousal okay. is felt in the body, and if you're stuck in and not being stuck in the mind, or is it both? Is If you're too much in your brain, is that unhealthy? Does that put that into unhealthy category? Very interesting question. I love that. Okay, so let me make sure I got it. The question is, if I'm aroused in my, if I'm thinking arousal thoughts in my brain, is that unhealthy? Must it always include feelings in the body? Okay, I think that I'm a typical clinician. I think the answer is it depends. And I know that's a terrible answer. It depends on the person. That said, I, I always want arousal to, to be a body experience, to enjoy the feeling in your body and to, to be seeking that and, and interacting emotionally with the other person and having that together, that would be healthy sexuality. If I only was in my mind, thought they were hot, <laughs> but see, if I'm thinking I'm hot, I'm arousal and I'm having that thought because I'm having that body sensation. So I don't know that you can have only mental without it being physical. The question is, am I aroused because I'm only looking or am I also enjoying the feeling? And this is a perfect example of, it's very complex, it's very individualized, and then you to add sex addiction on top of it and it becomes even more individualized. So I don't know if I can answer that with a real clarity that you might be seeking. Hopefully that was somewhat helpful. Do you have time if I throw one more out, Chad? Yeah. Great. This one's combining a couple, and I'm going to ask this one just because we're going to enter into some potential for personal and triggering yeah. content. Yeah. But there's there's quite a few questions around the coercion versus consent, and mm. when does that become rape, like you talked about before? Pause there. Pause there. Okay. That is an individual decision. That's an individual decision because 
what I might feel is a level of coercion that I feel, I don't know, I don't want to say tolerate, but every person will have that own, will have to create that definition and that line for themselves. What, what, where one person draws a line is not where the other person draws a line is not where the other person draws a line and all are okay. And so I would ask folks who are struggling with that, get with someone to work it out so you can decide for yourself what feels like a boundary and a boundary violation for you. What feels like coercion, what feels like rape for you because that is so individualized. And there's, and there's multiple factors to it. You know, you're growing up and experiences you had, your, your familiarity with sexuality, what was the relationship like beforehand, someone's remorse or lack of remorse afterwards. Like it's so individualized. So I really encourage y'all if you're struggling with that one is to, is to work with someone that you trust to help yourself figure out where's the line for you. Thank you. I love that. And I'll let you finish the slides. There are several other questions, but I think okay. they'll fit towards the end of your presentation. You got it. Okay, here we go. And I don't know if you all are thinking this or have said this, but when can I trust him? Well, you can trust him when he shows you trustworthy behaviors. I actually had a partner who was, she was a mathematician uh, by trade, and she, she created this little mathematical equation, trust over consistent behavior over time. And my thought was, oh, yeah, that's, that's going to live forever. When the truth is always present and shared on a consistent level for a consistent amount of time, then we're starting to trust. I, I am not going to encourage someone to say, or, or sometimes, you know, I've, I've been sober three months. Why doesn't she trust me? Are you kidding? <laughs> And, I, and this is my face. I will give this to an addict. Are you kidding? You acted out and betrayed her for five, 10 years, and you think six months of sobriety is going to undo that? You, you underestimate the damage and destruction here. So let's go back and have some empathy for her experience of the last 10 years. Super important. Empathy is one thing that a lot of addicts lack, and it's a skill that most of them need to really work on and develop. It does not come naturally. Not that they're not loving people, but sometimes they have a really hard time getting in your shoes without defensiveness, without protection. So, so I just want to point out, you know, trustworthy behaviors over time. I have said numerous times when I'm doing an assessment, I always have the partner in when I'm doing a sex addiction assessment for the first session. And I tell the addict in front of his wife, she's watching you. So words mean very little because they're often lies and have been in the past. And if you're turning a new leaf, wonderful. Keep doing it and doing it in ways that she can see it because she's watching you. So I'll trust you when you show me trustworthy behaviors. I really want to make sure folks understand that healing is possible. There is hope. This is, you know, I talk about a lot of pain and sometimes it's doom and gloom and it's really hard and it's hard to work through these situations. And my gosh, I'm asking you to talk through sex. I mean, how hard, that's extremely hard, but healing does happen. I have worked with so many people that create a new, I'm thinking of one couple and they call it their, their marriage 2.0. Hope does happen. Whether you stay in the relationship or not stay in the relationship. See, that's another piece we forgot to talk about. Even if, 
previous relationship and you have walked away or separated, divorced, whatever. In your next relationship, what do you want it to be like? So you doing your healing work now and getting clear for yourself on your own boundaries now really helps whatever future relationship you're going to have. So working on your healing, whether you're in the relationship or not, is going to just take you miles farther down the road later. Um, back to my elephant. <laughs> and this, again, I, I often in the beginning of these years would say, I want to talk about that elephant. If you all decide to go to couples therapy, you want to have a conversation with that therapist or coach, whomever you're working with, spiritual advisor, whomever you're working with, that they understand sex addiction and betrayal trauma. You want elephant therapy. You want to talk about the elephant that's in the room. You don't want to talk about your communication over who's picking Johnny up from school and how come he doesn't help with the chores and why do I feel like I'm the bad guy all the time. That kind of stuff is important, but it's not the pain of the rupture of the betrayal. And if we don't talk about that pain and rupture of betrayal stuff, we're never going to get progress and farther out of these, these cycles we get into about parenting or finances or whatever. So if you're going to do couples work, make sure it's with someone who understands this world and preferably someone who understands both languages, sex addiction language and partner betrayal language. Um, that's really important. And successful couples recovery, and this is where we'll talk about that reintegration piece. You need sobriety and honesty. For, for addicts, there's, we use a term, it's called rigorous honesty. And that means honesty no matter what. Okay, you said you were going to stop for a Coke. You actually stopped for three Cokes and a candy bar. You're going to come home and tell your wife, you know what, I need to be fully honest. I said I was going for one soda and I went for four. That's rigorous honesty. After a time, people really appreciate that initially. And then after a time, they're like, okay, I got it. You had an extra soda. But you are what you say you are and you're doing what you said you're doing and you're doing it in an honest way. That's going to have a lot of help for partners. I recommend that both people be in therapy or receiving some kind of support from folks who understand this world. Group is essential, and you all know that because you're in this group right now, and Worth has so many wonderful resources for you all. So stay in connection, stay in groups that are safe, where there's no judgment, and you can really talk this stuff out because lots of folks don't understand it, and you want to be where somewhere where you feel safe and accepted. Therapeutic disclosure. This is a process. It's a planned, careful therapy process where he's got a therapist, you've got a therapist. You also both might have coaches. You may be also in group. He does multiple versions of a chronology of his acting out behavior. So here is all of my acting out behavior over time. Here's the full story. I always say you can't build a good house unless you have a good foundation. Hence my little cute picture. We have to have a foundation and that's therapeutic disclosure. Partners have every right to know what's the truth of their reality when they haven't been, been told what their truth is. They're living this life and there were parts of their life they didn't know was happening. That's a power differential. We need to change that. That's therapeutic disclosure. You want someone who's trained to do that. APSATS folks are, CSATs are, and there probably might be other organizations too. Sex addiction couples therapy, we talked about that. Sexual healing. So, Kim, if we've got questions more about the sexual reintegration, that term, so y'all know, 
that term is we are trying to create a healthy sexuality for our relationship now, given pain and betrayals and acknowledgments of the past. And how do we create a healthy, safe sexual life for both of us as we go forward? And so that's what sexual reintegration is, bringing sexuality, healthy sexuality, back into the relationship at a pace everyone feels safe. Whoever is going the slowest, that's the pace we're going. There's no shame, there's no blame, but that's the pace we're going because that helps build true safety. Uh, life of recovery, it's a phrase we use. If I'm diabetic, I need to be careful always of what I eat and how I exercise. This is my new way of life. Same thing with sex addiction. Sex addiction is always being careful, the sex addict's responsibility, not the partner's, of being responsible for my behavior at all times, managing my sexual triggers, keeping my coping skills in a healthy realm, staying in good connection, and this is my life going forward so I stay in balance and not diverge off into sex addiction. And partners have working on their healing and so that they can trust themselves, trust their intuition, and maybe establish a better sense of their own boundary systems so that they know what they need and want and minimally require in a relationship. Those are life of recovery. All right, there's the end. So now I can take whatever questions. I know we ran over. And I so apologize if y'all felt like I went really fast. I talk about and I'm passionate about this subject and helping partners and working with addicts and helping families come together and heal. So at times my talks are four hours and I, I hope that I didn't overwhelm you all. Let me know what you've got, Kim. We've awesome. had several questions about women coming from the place of I've been I'm divorced or I'm divorcing I am realizing now that I've had many 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 years of very unhealthy damaging sexual experience is there hope how do and where do I go where do I go from here if I want to heal this 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 part of myself without a partner how do mm -hmm. I do that mm -hmm. yeah absolutely this healing can happen whether you're in the relationship or not and it's really taking time to, how do I say, go inward, whether you're doing that journey on your own or with a professional of what feels right for me and what parts do I get triggered by? And then spending time with that. Where does that trigger come from? What experience? What do I think feel? My body emotionally, physically, and cognitively. What do I respond to? Where does that come from? How can I have a safer sense of myself in the world as I go to meet other people. I think when one does that work introspectively, they might find red flags that they now know that they didn't previously. And so going forth in relationships, you might have a better sort of checklist or assessment process when you're deciding who you'd like to spend your time with and how you'd like to spend your time. I think also that one of the pieces is those intrusive thoughts are just bugaboos. And even sometimes in the new relationship, those intrusive thoughts might come cruising in. And so again, having that conversation with your loved one, talking about sexual injury, if that happened before, and how it was for you and what you're looking for in your new relationship. And I think doing some work so you get comfortable sharing you and looking within will help you then share with a future mate. Hopefully that made sense.
does. I, I'm going to ask a very similar follow-up question that popped up as well. How do I gauge if a new partner is safe before yeah. sex is a part of it? But there's no way to fully know. And, and truly, that's part of the work. How much risk are you willing to take at this point in your life for you? And everybody is different of what that means or looks like. And so that's where I'm like, get, get some support, do some dialogue. What does this look like for me? That said, having those conversations helps reduce risk. It does not eliminate. Right? If someone's out there using, they're going to use no matter what. And if they're going to keep using because they're active in their addiction and they're going to hide it from you, they're going to hide it from you. But that doesn't mean anything negative about you. So my recommendation is do your own work, figure out your own boundaries, figure out your wants, desires, needs, minimum requirements for sexuality, have the conversations, and then you have to make a decision. How much risk are you going to trust or are you not? And let me remind everyone, you are not at fault for trusting a loved one. You didn't do anything wrong. You trusted your loved one. Good for you. You're a trusting person. They weren't deserving of it. They messed up. They've got to work really hard to earn it back. But it's okay to make a decision that you would like to trust again. This question I'm going to start reading. If you recognize this being your question, I would love you to dialogue with Jeannie on this one. So if you want to just pop in as I read, uh, or if Jeannie wants to ask clarification. If you don't, that's fine and you can stay silent. The question is, I was listening to a sex therapist who said that I contributed to my husband's sexual compulsion by not taking ownership over my own desire and sexual growth. I do admit I was putting it on my husband to take care of that aspect of our relationship, but I don't feel like it was a comfortable or safe place to fully own this aspect of myself. What is your perspective? I love this question. Thank you to whomever put this out there. And P.S. I'm super sorry that you had to go through that. I'm a sex addiction therapist, so I'm super clear on this. His addiction is his addiction at all times. You're not responsible for his addiction. And there's, a, there's an organization out there called COSA. And one of their mantras I love is you didn't cause it. You can't control it. You can't cure it. It's not yours. Now, that said, next paragraph, it may be that certain things about you and dynamics in your relationship may have added to the stress or whatever that propelled him forward. But it was his addiction. There's a phrase in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, I, genetics may have loaded the gun, but I shot the bullet. So have clarity that yes, I of course am responsible for my behavior at all times. And I might be adding to the stress of the marriage at times, absolutely. But that doesn't cause an addiction. That's just one factor and one piece of it. So I support you that you are not the cause of his addiction. <laughs> and yeah, it's clear for me. I hope I expressed it clearly for y'all. So absolutely. this next question, um, is I am divorced and in my marriage my spouse was unable to be turned on often. I took it very personally because I didn't know about his addiction. How mm -hmm. do I heal from this 
before getting into a future relationship when I feel I am lacking self-esteem regarding my sexuality and how mm -hmm. I have confidence in myself in those areas. Absolutely. So this is, this is common and let me make sure I got you. The sex addict took the sexual energy out of the relationship, therefore, but didn't tell the partner. So the partner is left with this absent sexual energy. Where is the sexual life of our relationship? And then, like a lot of people would say, well, what, what am I doing wrong? Am I not sexy enough, tall enough, big enough, bad enough, tall enough, thin enough, whatever enough? And so if you have taken that and made, in that, made that about you, then I want you to work really hard of understanding his addiction was his, and he took that outside your relationship, and actually it doesn't speak to anything about your sexuality. Now, I can say this. And you might understand it in your mind and accept it in your mind, but in your body, you still fear or have worries or feel um, insecure about that. If it gets in your way, I encourage you to talk to someone. There's a lot of techniques, if anyone's ever heard of EMDR or brain spotting. These are excellent techniques to kind of take what you know to be true in your cognitive brain, but you don't feel it's true in your body and match the two up. EMDR and brain spotting, y'all can find them online and YouTube. Um, you have to do it with a professional, but these are really great wins. So for this particular gal, you might want to think about seeking some of that resource out, especially if you're struggling to detach from this was his. It wasn't that I was sexually undesirable because my body's awesome. Could you re repeat your quote and maybe the context of this, the gun quote, the smoking gun? Oh, yeah. Okay, sure. We talk a lot about in addiction land, genetics, you know, nature versus nurture kind of talk. And so the, I, there's an expression of loading the gun. The genetics may load the gun, but the person decides to shoot. And so I'm just using that as a metaphor in the same way of you may have had stress in the relationship. You may have decided not to be sexual with him for the last 15 years. You may have been arguing constantly about money. You know, you may have been doing whatever thing. But that doesn't, that's not you pulling the trigger. That's his addiction. You're adding to, it's also, I would say, like it's, it's part of the recipe, but it's not everything together. So do not take on responsibility for his addiction. His addiction is his and his alone. You may play a part into the stress of it, but you didn't create that neural process in his brain. And probably he didn't mean to either, right? No one sets out to say, yes, I want to be a sex addict when I grow up. They just find themselves in trouble. And how did I get here? And a lot of them feel a lot of shame about that. And then some don't get help. And so they can't see what we see. Uh, this is a little bit of a general question. I love this question as well. So how do we learn? to trust ourselves enough so that we can trust someone else. Yes, yes, yes. That is one of, thank you. One of the heartbreaking parts of partners of sex addicts is the, the gaslighting. That might be a term that y'all know about, but it's the lying that distorts your reality. The damage it does to our self-intuition and our ability to feel like we're a good judge of whatever is going on in the world. And so I often will say to my partners, your intuition meter got broken. So we need to help heal that. And what I hear your, the question being, Kim, is, is my intuition meter's gotten broken. How do I fix that? 
so I can start to trust myself. I would say to this person, you're already starting that process because you're in this group. You're in this group, you've got to this resource, obviously you're involved in worth, uh, connected to worth somehow, so you're doing this work. I find groups to be essential in helping heal that intuition meter. Because I, I often in my group therapy will say, okay, show of hands, who thinks this squirrely? You know, and it's like a gut check. Or show of hands, who thinks this is on the up and up? Who thinks this sounds about right? Who thinks they need to ask a couple more questions? Gut check. And that's checking the intuition. So I might feel my intuition, I can't trust myself, but I feel like it's not okay. And then the whole group says, yeah, I don't think it's okay. That helps me heal my intuition here. So to, to the question, stay in groups, stay talking with people who know this world, to help discover more about you so you can have clarity about your boundaries, needs, and wants and feelings. So I'm going to go back to my basics, which is talking. Talk to him. I, I, and this, this is actually one of the things, like if, if you haven't been having sex or haven't been wanting to have sex, and then you do, and then you regret it, then let's use that as a learning moment that you're not ready. It's a learning moment. You know what? I thought I was ready. We gave it a go. I realized I wasn't. I'm, I'm, I'm really not feeling good about myself. And so I think we need to have a lot more conversation before we have sex again. Okay. Use it as a learning moment so that you don't beat yourself up about it, but you can say, well, I, I thought I was ready and I wasn't. And, and now I know. And so let's go from there. And having that conversation, again, talking in the kitchen family room before we get into the bedroom. That's what that is. Yeah. And, and he's going to be confused. And, and that's okay. Confusion we can work with. Wait a second. I thought you were ready and we had sex and we're going backwards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought I was ready. I wasn't. I think we need to have more talks. I really also want to, for addicts, okay, Sex Addicts Anonymous, SAA, they have this really beautiful way of articulating what's, what is relapse, what behaviors are in the no category. Um, it's called the three circles, looks like a bullseye. The outer circle is healthy behaviors, things we're going to do to stay in good recovery and good sobriety. The middle circle coming into your uh, bullseye, middle circle is be cautious, beware. These are experiences, feelings, emotions, behaviors that I have to be careful with because I don't want to go into my inner circle. If I go in my inner circle, I've relapsed. Now, as an addiction therapist, I want that inner circle super clear. Masturbation, pornography, sex outside of marriage with anyone, you know, whatever it is. Alcohol might be in there too, by the way. That provides the clarity for both partners in that relationship to understand what's in the no category. What's in the inner circle? Now, you don't get to say what's in his circles. However, what's in his circles may not be okay with you. And that's okay too. Let's say he doesn't put porn in inner circle. Let's say he puts masturbation in middle circle, which is the cautious beware, not the inner. That doesn't mean you have to be okay with it. His circles are his to manage, to create, and all those things. And you could not be okay with it and not give mutual consent for those behaviors. I just like the three circles because I think it helps addicts as well as partners get real good clarity about what's in the no category. Right. 
And some people will say, well, masturbation's always in the know. And some people will say, what? Masturbation's a natural, healthy experience. Well, not for a masturbation addict, it's not. <laughs> right. So it's fine tuning it. It's fine tuning it. No one's circles okay. will ever be the same. We have some additional questions I'll take note of. Uh, they would create some great discussion, but we really appreciate this time that you've spent with us. And did you have any closing thoughts that you wanted to just wrap up with before we ended today or? Yes, thank you. I, I wanna just put out to y'all, first of all, thank you for being here, right? This is a sensitive private topic and you all made the courageous, brave decision to get online, to listen, to hear things maybe you hadn't heard before, maybe hear perspectives you hadn't heard before. So thank you for being brave and courageous. Thank you for going to your groups and seeking the help. This is not an easy subject. This is hard, complicated work and you're worth it. So I'm glad to hear that people are really actively working and healing themselves. And if you can be in a partnership where the partner wants to help, great, but he's not required, you are. So continue in your bravery and go forward. Thank you all. I'm here for you guys. Thank you so much, Jeannie. Appreciate Goodbye. it. Bye, good night, everyone. Thanks for joining us this week on Healing with Worth. Make sure to visit our website, healingwithworth.org, if you would like to enroll in an online therapist-led support group. We'll see you next time.